Next Chapter Podcasts. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hey there, everybody. Before we start today's episode, which I know you're going to love, I want to mention another show from Next Chapter Podcast. I think you'll also dig, especially if you're into movies, it's called Scopophilia. That's a hard word for me to say, and it's hosted by Becky Teller, who might be one of the few people in the world that loves movies as much as I do. That's why I love listening to her and her guests do deep dives on some of the biggest Hollywood hits. They pick their favorite films apart and analyze them with an added layer to the conversation. Along with discussing the content, they talk about how the world they grew up in shaped how they see cinema classics, like The Graduate, Old School, and Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. So be sure to join the millennial movie movement and listen to Scopophilia wherever you listen to your podcasts or go to ncpodcast.com slash Scopophilia. I'm not going to spell it for you. You got to figure it out to learn more. Now let's get back to the show. The 500 The 500 J.A.M. been walking us down through that 2012 edition so it ain't nothing to new hundreds more to go Talking the 500 until the end. Talking the 500 until the end. With my man J.M. On the 500. Talking the 500 until the end. That is Odds and Ends by Bob Dylan and the band from the 1975 record The Basement Tapes. It's also number 292 out of 500 on the 500 with Josh Adam Myers. What's up, everybody? Come out to a show. I have so many shows right now, it's not even funny. This weekend, I will be at Bananas in New Jersey on Saturday night. I will be in Philly on Sunday night. Next week, November 9th, I will be at Off the Hook in Naples, Florida. And November 10th through the 12th, I'll be at Side Splinters in Tampa. Uh, Comedy Store, November 20th through the 21st. Comedy Cellar in Vegas, November 28th through December 4th. And then December 9th through the 10th, I'll be at the Comedy Connection in Rhode Island. December 11th, Vermont. And Plano, Texas, New Year's Eve, the 29th through the 31st. So I want to see you guys there. 
Subscribe to the Patreon, players. $5 or more a month gets you all this great stuff. You get uh, you get merch. You get to ask questions to the guests. Patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast. Subscribe to the YouTube. Uh, YouTube.com backslash the 500 podcast. And subscribe to my YouTube. YouTube.com backslash Josh Adam Myers. All right. You guys want to talk about Bob Dylan? Well, as you know, I started the end and worked my way forward, and we are doing it the wrong way. But this guest, man, does he add light and energy to an album that is long, yet one of my favorites that we've done with Bob Dylan, the one and only Nish Kumar. You know him from Netflix's Comedians of the World. He is the former host of BBC's The Mash Report and BBC Radio 4's The News Quiz. And he is an incredible stand-up comic. Uh, we've met at Just for Laughs, and I'm so happy to have him on because this was a lot of fun. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500. Listen free on all platforms. Follow me, at Josh Adam Myers, on all social media, where every day I post new clips. And for all tickets to my shows, go to joshadammyers.com. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group run by Crazy Evan. And for all things 500, go to the website, the500podcast.com. All right, y'all, here we go with The Basement Tapes by Bob Dylan and the band at 292. This Bob Dylan record, it doesn't seem like one. It's For me, it was one that I had never heard of. You oh, know? really? Uh, yeah, well, I, I hate saying this, but I feel like I got to say this at the beginning of this podcast is I have never been a Bob Dylan fan. I, sure. as a, I, as, I, as, I just never got him. Um, yeah, sure. And but I but respect. I've seen him live. I saw him. I saw him. Uh, I saw him in Washington D.C. I went to go see because the Rackin tours were opening for him. Yeah, and, and I love them. Um, and then I and then I stay to watch Dylan, and like he, it was so crazy because it's like the whole band's playing and he's like in the back, not even yeah. facing the audience. This is what like two thousand and five, maybe two thousand and six at the latest. Yeah, and. And, and, but it was like, all right, you know, like, like I respect him. I understand that he's a genius. I understand why everybody, because I remember I met some guy that had been following him around for like years. Yeah. Like he attracts Harvard, those fans. Like a Harvard graduate, you know, just, we talked to this dude and he was like, he's like, I'll never miss a show if I can. It's like, I'm, I'm literally like missing school to follow him on this short tour he's doing. <laughs> and, and then I started doing this podcast and, you know, we, we're doing that list, the 500 greatest albums. We're starting at 500. Yeah. We're working our way down. Now, Dylan's got how many records does Dylan have on this podcast? I think I think we have. I think you. Made I would the say. List. What do you think? So you've done John Wesley Harding already. We've done all right. So we've done Time Out of Mine with Tom Hanks's wife, which you know blew my mind. I was like, why am I talking to Rita Wilson? Yeah. Right now? <laughs> I'm a comic. Uh, <laughs> love and Thin. We did Love and Thin. We did Love and Thin. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. This is the 2012 <sighs> list. I wonder how many they dropped, but like we went Time Out of Mind. That was at 410. 385 was Love and Theft. We did that with John Doe from the band X. Then we did John Wesley Harding uh, with Nimesh Patel. Uh, and that was Very a funny, few... Though. That was a f not too long ago. That was like, I think, you know, fuck, that was, I felt like it was only like two or three months ago. And now we're at the basement tapes. Uh, I want you to guess, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say it, but I want you to guess how many more records do you think that he's got on this? Now, including the basement tapes, we've got Time Out of Mind, Love and Theft, John Wesley Harding, the basement tapes. 
Take a guess what you think is next. Just pick one that you think is next. I think that the next one, I, I think for certain, you're talking about all three of what Dylan fans would deem to be the Holy Trilogy. So I think certainly Bring It All Back Home, uh, Highway 61 Revisited and Blonde on Blonde are all in there. Yes. Um, I think definitely Blood on the Tracks is in there and possibly yes. Blood on the Tracks is the highest position on the 500. Oh, no. Is, no, no. is it Blood oh. on Blonde? No, it's Highway 61 is Revisited. Highway 61? Yeah, so that's... Then I was... I would say beyond that, that those four, you definitely also have freewheeling Bob Dylan. You do, and you got two more, dude. Bring it all back home right now, dude. See how I tried to include times they are changing. Nope. Oh, uh, you got two more. Oh, mercy. No. God, there's like he says like 48 albums, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Just start um, going through all of them. Hunky, chunky, gishplunky. Yeah. <laughs> You're Maybe like, it's a debut album? album, Bob Dylan. <laughs> no. no, that's not on there. So then it has to be, I guess, another side of Bob Dylan. No, I'll give oh. them to you. I'll give them to you because Nashville skyline. I, no, oh. no, 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 no. But I love that you know all of these. We, it's coming in next at two o four. You ready for this? Modern times. Wow. And oh, then, okay. And then about thirty records later. Desire. Oh, of course, Desire. Of but course. this is what, but, which was great. And that was so great. I, I just had so much fun doing that with you because yeah. you really showed how many albums you knew. Also the way that you were like the Holy Trinity. But this is the thing, dude. This is the thing with me and Bob Dylan is I started doing the podcast and because we're doing it from 500 down, we're starting with Time Out of Mind. Now, yeah. I've said this every episode, we've done a Dylan record. I think that is the worst way to listen to Bob Dylan. I think the yes. only way that you should listen to him is you start with the early shit. Like you said, that Holy Trinity. So yeah. you can really hear where, where he was or, you know, like start at the beginning and then you work your way up. That would be like, that's like me listening to Miles Davis going, I'm going to start with his weirdest shit, like bitches brew. Yeah. You then, can't start on, you can't start with Tutu. You can't drop somebody in. On two, no, two. no, you you got it. You got to go all the way back. You got to go to the birth of the cool, and then you yeah. just work your way up until you get to that place where you're like, oh, I get it. Because if I would have started, and I've gone back and I've listened to like Highway sixty one and Blonde on yeah. Blonde and Blood on the Tracks, and I'm like, oh yeah, this is brilliant. I can even imagine what this was like when this came out. But then I I can more appreciate Time Out of Mind and Love and Theft. Yeah, but but I would never like time out of mind. I remember listening to this being like, God damn, every song is seven minutes long. It's a story <laughs> about death and God and Jesus as a car dealer or whatever. And it's just and it, and it just took away all of the air out of out of really being able to appreciate how great something like time out of mind really is, because I just yeah, didn't know. What's weird is that must be I think that album must have come out in 97. I think, but yeah. it's around the time that he had a kind of a heart episode. And he's, I think his quote at the time was, I really thought I would be meeting Elvis soon. And then he wrote this album, which is him like reckoning with mortality and like, what does it mean to really be staring down death? Anyway, uh, 25 years later, he's still <laughs> not just, he's, he's still not just alive. I saw him in concert 
last week. You uh, saw him in concert I last saw him week? Last week. Yeah, last week in London on Sunday, 81 years old. He did 90 minutes straight through. Didn't he talk was to absolutely anybody. incredible. He didn't talk to anybody. He sort of would occasionally come to the front of the stage and sort of pose with one hand on his hip. And like he, he sort of, there's something always of the like silent comedian about him. Like he's sort of obsessed with Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. And so he's got this kind of weird, like shuffly, almost like clown like manner on stage. But really? the songs he played most of, uh, he played all of Rough and Rowdy Ways, his most recent album. And people were loving it. And it was a great gig. And I just thought it was such an interesting point in his career he's reached where he could be 81 years old, play his most recent album. He didn't play anything, any song pre-1966, apart from really? a cover of that old Black Magic. Yeah. And the that 1966 song he played was most likely You'll Go Your Way and I'll Go Mine from Blonde on Blonde. And I just thought, man, that's a hell of a career. If you can not play any of your most famous songs, and he, and he does he when he comes to the UK he plays these sort of ten thousand seat stadiums. Yeah. Apart from in London, he started doing the Palladium, which is like an old music hall that seats about two and a half thousand people. Mm. So it's so much smaller. And I I was I just couldn't get. My friend was asking me how it was, and I was like, I couldn't get over the basic strangeness that I was looking at Bob Dylan that closely. Yeah. You know, like because I the, I saw him twenty years ago, and I was sat at the back of. I sat at the back of an arena that was still wet from the previous evening's ice hockey game. And like, you know, that's not like the most romantic way to see somebody you venerated since you were a teenager. Like there's that Simpsons episode of Spinal Tap with Spinal Tap in the yeah. Simpsons. And they're like, oh, oh, there's like pot pools of stagnant water. And uh, I think it's Nigel Tufnell says, this is a rock show, not the bleeding splish splash show. And yeah. it, really, it, really, it really reminded me when the first time I saw Dylan, I was like, this is not the bleeding splish splash show. But it was like a beautiful theatre. And he just, you know, it's so funny to me whenever I listen to Time Out of Mind, he's like, I'll be dead soon. And you're like, if only I could go back in time to tell just that tell yeah. sprightly 57 year old. You got time, bro. You got at least, you got- you got at least 17 more records to come out. <laughs> You got a whole Frank Sinatra cover album, buddy. You're uh, gonna be fine. What? When? When did you become a fan of his? Like, like, did it? Was it a young age, or is this something that happened after you kind of got older and started learning about the world? Or like, no. How? When I was a t- when I was a teenager, I got into Jimmy. Hen- I heard a Jimi Hendrix song, and I was like, and I heard Electric Ladyland. I, at the time, I was kind of in like a. I was really into the Fugees and that era of rap music. And I loved yeah. Miseducation of Lauren Hill. I was probably about 13 when that album came out. And I remember being aware enough to think this is an album. This isn't just five singles that they've then padded out with some shit and a couple of awkward skits. Like mm-hmm. this is an album and it's sequenced. And the, there's a reason that tracks are in that order. Yeah. And the interstitial stuff is actually telling you a story about where she comes from. And and then, and then I kind of, I sort of just drifted around a little bit and I didn't really listen. There's like a black hole in my life. Like I'm 37 years old, but yeah. I have, my teenage recollections are the same as somebody in their mid sixties. So like, there's this like black <laughs> hole with contemporary music and I've gone back and filled in some of the like 
Radiohead gaps. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I've I've filled in some of the stuff, but there's a gap between the Miseducation of Lauren Hill and Speaker Box and the Love Below by Outcast. That's when I like rejoin contemporary music, and in that whatever it is, probably five year period, I just started inhaling Jimi Hendrix. I I got I heard Electric Ladyland and What's Going On the Marvin Gaye album. And after I heard those two albums, I was like, okay, put every, we, we've got to put everything away. We've missed yeah. some stuff. We've got to go back to the source. And yeah. so then I started getting hold of, actually listening to the Beatles albums, which I'd never, which, you know, in England, everybody knows the Beatles. Like, I swear to God, no one knows the words to our fucking terrible national anthem. But if you ask <laughs> any random British person, if you drop them in the middle of Yellow Submarine, they can get to the end. Like, it's yeah. really like, like the Beatles, like all you need is love should be the national anthem of this country. Yeah, 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 yeah. We actually know that song better than we, you know, it's, we know that song. And, and also, as far as I know, the Beatles are not harboring any secret leaders, <laughs> as far as I know. <laughs> it's so like, in it's, a way, it might be an upgrade on the royal family, maybe. It's like even when they try to sing the the British national anthem, they just sing the words to "Yesterday." You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. It's, yesterday, 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 yesterday. Hilarious. Yeah. It's always awkward when they do when they like when they have football soccer, of, of course, for America, for the American audience. Whenever they have the English national team playing uh, soccer, the camera goes right in the players' faces, and you're like, "That's too close." They don't know the words. Give them some grace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like give here. them a little bit, man. Don't don't make them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, what? it was. I start. I went back, and I was like, "Okay, this is so." Uh, Jimi Hendrix. This is obviously, I'd never heard anything like Electric Ladyland. And it completely it rewired my whole brain for music. And what's, I would say definitely Wait, what's going on. We're not to cut you off, but how old are you? I just want to know when that- 15, when the, I'm 15, 15, 15 okay, cool. years old, yeah. yeah. At 15, you know, that's an age where you're just looking for the thing that's going to kick your head into gear. Yeah, you know, oh yeah. Like I think when you're at 15 years old, you're just waiting- for what that thing is that's going to fall it and literally i heard crosstown traffic by Jimi hendrix and i was like okay this is the thing and yeah. so then i started um you know like becoming a music nerd like going on to those lists of the 100 best albums and like buying things like otis blue and kind of blue and um blue by Joni mitchell just blue albums i just bought a lot of really blue albums um and on electric ladyland there is of course the cover of all along the watchtower and so then you go, okay, that song was written by this fellow B. Dylan. Now I know Bob Dylan, Blowing in the Wind, because we used to sing that again, like a hymn at, uh, when I was at six years old at school. Like that was a, everybody knows the words of Blowing in the Wind. So you think, okay, yeah. I kind of know this guy. So then a friend of mine lends me the 67 greatest hits, which is basically the 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 best of the the that probably his most famous era of music the folk into going electric and finishing with down in nashville on blonde on blonde mm -hmm. and so you listen to that and you just think okay well i don't think my brain is going to be the same after i listen to this so then i went from the great hits i bought all of those albums and it's kind of a period of dylan people not really it was kind of just a period where he maybe was a little out of fashion. For whatever reason, I was able to buy his CDs very cheaply. It was a nice combination of maybe Dylan slightly not being quite as in fashion as he 
almost always has been, and also the decline of physical media. So yeah, because CDs yeah. were dirt cheap, I was just buying up. I bought up everything. Every birthday, uh, any money that I earned, everything went on buying Dylan albums. So I bought, you know, the the three, and he, I, I got them in like box sets. So I got the folk albums, Freewheeling, Times Are Changing, Another Side in a box set. Then I got another box set that was uh, Highway 61 Visited, Blonde on Blonde, Bring It All Back Home. And I, I, and I just couldn't get enough of the stuff. And then the thing is, this uh, uh, Sean O'Hagan is an English music writer, once said, there is no bore like a Dylan bore. So I get ready, fellas. Because then <laughs> if you want to go deep with Dylan, you can just go way deep because he's recorded so much and so much so of it is much. available. So then at some point, somebody you become aware of the existence of the bootleg series. And I got the first three volumes of that, which are just studio offcuts. And the other thing that Dylan doesn't have is a radar for what of his songs are good. <laughs> so there's stuff on the unreleased album that's like, Mummy Been On My Mind, the version of it that's on the second bootleg series is one of my all-time favourite songs. There's things like Blind Willie McTell that's a better song than anything he put on Infidels. And so suddenly I'm like, immersed in this whole world of Bob Dylan and I you know and I just I just couldn't get enough of it and then I saw him in 2002 when he was touring Love and Death and it was the first gig I ever went to in the Splish Splash Show arena and <laughs> there's now a conference center that's how bad a music venue it is that venue is now a center where they have corporate conferences it's the shittest place in the world to watch music but yeah I was just like I was I was all in, all in on Dylan. You, I've, I found a quote that you described Dylan as the most endearing and important creative relationship of your life. What makes you characterize this work as like a relationship? I think, I, I, I think if you have invested the time that I've invested into his recorded works, you start to develop this like weirdly personal relationship with him. And through the, and I think that that's, maybe more so than a lot of other musicians, he's simultaneously incredibly shrouded in mystique, but also feels very available, maybe because he tours so regularly. Yeah. But also there's, a, there's something about the intimacy his fans seem to have with him. And that sometimes becomes quite toxic. You know, part of the reason I think people felt like they could like boo and shout things in 1960, in 1966 when he was touring the UK was, think people felt an ownership of him and I do think there's something about him that invites a kind of intimacy maybe because he's uh, he still feels very available because he's still touring or also maybe it's just because if you've gone deep with him you've heard you feel like you know you know his process because you've heard five different versions of like a Rolling Stone you've heard you can hear how his mind is working and even at the Palladium there's just dudes there like between songs because there's this kind of reverential hush when the songs are playing and then everyone applauds. And then just every three songs, someone just shouts, go on, Bobby. <laughs> like, and because it's an English accent as well, it really sounds like a football hooligan. Like, it really yeah, 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 like yeah. go on, Bobby. Go on, mate. <laughs> and it, it really, I think that he's cultivated some sort of weird personal relationship, maybe because he's simultaneously given us so much of himself in his work and his relentless touring, but also given us almost nothing of himself because we know very little about him. Like I, the only other person I can compare it to is Prince in terms of the intimacy 
that we all feel with Prince. And at the same time, we actually almost know nothing about nothing yeah. as a person. You know, I, there's something about people like that that feels simultaneously both ex- very accessible to us and completely removed. That means that you, in a weird way, feel like you're connected to them umbilically. Yeah. Well, if you had to rank yourself into like fanatic to like, I mean, obviously you're not just dude that kind of listens to him on a scale of one to 10 and 10 being a fanatic, where would you put yourself on the Bob Dylan scale? Uh, I think there's two answers to that question. I think for a Bob Dylan fan, a Bob Dylan obsessive would probably, I'd probably rank about a four or five. But compared to everybody else, non-Bob Dylan, I'm like an eight. You're an eight. I, uh, yeah. There, what's funny is there are websites that when I would go back and research these records, um, when I first started doing it, I found a whole website dedicated to just people breaking down his lyrics, like, yeah. you know, uh, trying to find the meaning in some of these songs. And, and I mean, there's not many musicians let alone like writers or or authors that people are doing that i mean do you obviously i mean judging by by your relationship with him the fact that you even say that you have a relationship with him is that you know i i think is he more of a musician or is he more of a poet like what do you think when you're really talking about what dylan is offering to us is it the lyrics is the music i think it's i think it has to be both because i think that he but I do think, you know, as a writer, he is a, he's a pretty, he's a pretty extraordinary user of language yeah. and his autobiography, the Chronicles volume one of which we have not seen any other volumes, yeah, <laughs> any yeah, other yeah. volumes at all. <laughs> he, 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 the way that he uses language is, is pretty, you know, it's pretty extraordinary. And, but also he invites, you know, because he changes his own words so often like honestly you could sit and I could talk to you for two and a half hours about the song Tangled Up in Blue and the various different changes that he makes between the version that they recorded in New York and the version that they recorded uh, in Minnesota that ends up on the final album the the lyric changes because he changes the um he, he changes the he changes the pronouns the first version is written in the third person then it slips into the first person and he there's little lyric changes and he can just sort of he changes the structure of songs so often it kind of invites that kind of uh and there's not many people for whom i mean, i think it's only really now we're getting a lot of the like beatles offcuts and work in progress stuff yeah um and like this i think this new set of uh, revolver outtakes that sort of builds the process and and of course the like get back documentary you know that sort of fascination with like watching them kind of put the songs together and like watching Paul McCartney kind of hammering the guitar and being like, Oh, he's, he's finding get back. Like in the, the thing about Dylan is that we've had that for a long time because of the amount of the bootleg series stuff that's available just because of the sheer volume of it. And so it, that it kind of invites that kind of scrutiny. And also a lot of the songs, like some of the songs, can't bear up to the scrutiny. No one's writing essays about the Mighty Quinn. God love it as a song, but you know, <laughs> come on without, come on within. You've not seen nothing like the Mighty Quinn. Nobody's doing a dissertation on that. You know, and <laughs> what's funny about Dylan is that people kind of like apply the same level of academic rigor. You know, there's like Tangled Up in Blue, he was trying to write a song that 
capture that could be appreciated like a painting because he'd become obsessed with time and in a painting it's flat so the past the present and the future are all happening at the same time and so with tangled up and blue he was trying to write a song where the time frames were shifting constantly and your memories were being caught up with the thing that was going on in front of you and then there's also like you know there's other like goofier songs that you can't apply that same of black damn cricket to, but people still try. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, this is Mike Wiebe, and I'm the singer in a band called The Riverboat Gamblers. And I'm Zach Blair. I play guitar in a band called Rise Against. Mike and I also have a band called The Draculas. And we also have this great, amazing new podcast called Zach and Mike Make Three. Yeah, each week we're going to ask ourselves and we're going to ask our guests what three favorite things they are into at that moment or in their entire lives. And then we're either going to agree with them or we're going to make fun of them. And uh, you're going to listen to it and you're going to like it or we will make fun of you. How about that? I just flipped it on you, the person listening to this right now. But we're going to do it every week here on the Sound Talent Network. Once again, it's called Zach and Mike Make Three. Yeah. <laughs> And the yeah. people are really like, really trying to like get into the kind of academic nitty gritty. Well, you said you, know, you said there was mystery. It's like that's true. It's like even when I was yeah. listening to Time Out of Mind, and and I would see like Rita pull up these lyrics and and try to like, but this is I think this is what he's trying to say. Yeah. And I'm, and then I'd be like, well, I looked at this website and th I think they're trying to say this. And she'd be like, no, I got yeah. this from it. You know, when when you get something, when you get a really great album. And especially, you know, a lot of musicians, it's just you can you, you you read the lyrics after listening to the song and you're like, oh, I, I this is about a girl or this is about this or this is about this time in his life. Um, and, and he really does like leave everything kind of open to your interpretation. Um, yeah. And and there is this this mystery about him. It's like he doesn't I haven't seen many interviews of him. You know what I mean? He no, doesn't, he doesn't give, give that many interviews, no. Nor does he give you any real emotion. Like one of my favorite things ever is that we are the world video. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever seen that? And everybody's yeah. like, fucking, we are the world. And he's just like, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> but I, I, and I love it. And I love anybody that loves something and feels something for a band. I mean, I you mentioned Radiohead. Like I, I, I can remember the first time I heard them and how that's yeah. grown and, and they're, they're a band where you're like, I think I can, I understand what he's saying, but also yeah. it could just be about computers and how they're taking over. Like, yeah. you know, you can always go back to that with, with them. And I think with Dylan, I feel it's like, like the great journey of my life is to be finally old enough to admit that in rainbows is the best Radiohead album. I think that that has been the great journey of my life because I want you, I feel like I want to say, okay, computer, I want to say kid A because yeah. of the conceptual, the sort of overarching conceptual nature of both of those albums. But actually, in Rainbows, it's just okay to admit it. 
Every song is fucking amazing. And the concept of the album is what if Radiohead just did a bunch of fucking amazing songs? Yeah, yeah. And 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 then then even just that, just the idea that they were like, and we're gonna give it to you for whatever you want to pay us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like and that's really like the birth of of like I'm not saying digital, but that was kind of when digital media was like, all right, now this is the way that we're gonna be consuming it, and this is the way we're gonna be getting it. I, on the other hand, it's taken me years to go from OK Computer to Kid A. I think right, Kid A. Yeah. I think Kid A is their masterpiece. I think I think OK Computer is is the album that I still listen to, and I can remember. I mean, just like weeping and feeling like yeah. it was written for me, and like it made me drop out of college and go to Europe for seven months. Like I just, really? I, was like, I was like, what am I doing with my life? I'm wasting my life. I'm just, I don't want to do this. And, but, but when Kid A came out, I remember it, it didn't hit me right away. There were yeah. songs like How to Disappear Completely and, and Idiotech and, and, but, but now looking back on it, I'm just like, that, I'm, everything, everything wow. about it, everything yeah. about that. But, uh, but look, I think, like you said, the Holy Trinity of Bob Dylan, the Holy Trinity of Radiohead is in, uh, in Rainbows, uh, OK Computer and Kid A. Yeah. And everything else can fuck off. Like if you have to take those, they're all the other albums are great, but those three, in my opinion, and some people would say they probably remove uh, in rainbows and they would put um, they would the bends. The bends, yeah. Well, yeah. Britain. This is what I love about you know, and I love that you're on you're on the podcast for this because um, also you and I were you, you. I think you were at JFL this year in in yeah. Montreal, right? Yeah, I I saw you there, uh, and I, I I didn't really know you, but I know of you, and I think we're just we've had a bunch of festivals where we've been together. Yeah, yeah. I, I have this fascination with British music, and that's and it's that's why I love that that you you you've you know you've lived there your whole life, and and you can appreciate Bob Dylan because there's something about uh like England where some of the greatest music ever made has come out of there and and it's not even just like lyrically or musically it's just there's there's like this 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 era of my life that it was I was consumed by anything by a British artist it was like the early late late 90s early 2000s it started with Radiohead and then it went to Gomez and Travis and the verve and oasis and blur and now it's like yeah. David Albarn and it's just and then you know the arctic monkeys and just so many different bands and it didn't make a difference what the band was if they were even good or not but if they were british i fucking yeah. loved them and <laughs> and it, and it's like and dylan is more in my opinion of even though he's so american it's something that I feel like the British will appreciate him more than Americans just because well, he's of the- very like he's very beloved here. And also, I think um, there's a lot of um, this kind of a lot of the iconography of Dylan is intertwined with his relationship with England because some of the most celebrated and important film of him is actually in the United Kingdom because the two Pennebacker, well, the second one never really got released, but then Scorsese ended up using it. So there's Don't Look Back, which is him in 65 doing an acoustic tour after he's done Bring It All Back Home. So he's done the half electric, half acoustic album, and okay. then he's touring England. And, you know, it's it's an amazing film because he's sort of bored of his own songs but when he performs, he's still extraordinary. 
And it's shot in this like cinema verite style. So the cameras are sort of running around following him and the concert footage looks impeccable. It's a beautiful black and white film. And then Pennebacher also went back and shot, I mean, he's one of the great rock documentaries. Yeah. You know, he shot Hendrix at Monterey. You know, he's a, he's a very, very significant figure, but he shot Eat the Document, which was the film, experimental film that Dylan was editing in Woodstock at the time of the basement tapes to bring us back onto the, the album. This record, yeah. It was, yeah, it was, he was, so he had got all this footage from the 66 tour, the 65 tour, big success. Everybody loves him. He plays a show at the Albert Hall. The Beatles are all there. The end of the film is him sat in the back of a taxi and the camera's just on him. And there are points in that movie where he has like a very immature argument with the Time magazine journalist. And even at the end of the film, when he sat in the car and he's sort of absorbing the fact that he, you know, he's just, you know, 5,000 people in the Royal Albert Hall have just hung on every word of his for an hour and a half. And he, you know, you, you, you know, it's like we're comics, you, you're watching a guy have a good gig. He's, this, he's coming to come down from having yeah, a really, yeah, yeah. really, he, he smashed the fuck out of the Albert Hall and he's like properly like coming down. And there's just a great line in it where somebody says they called you, an, uh, some paper has described you as an anarchist. And he starts laughing and he says, well, someone give the anarchist a cigarette. And it's just one of those things where you're like, fuck, you're, he's so cool. But there's little flashes like the immature argument he has with the Time magazine journalist where you go, God, he's 24. Like he's 24. He's a child. Yeah. And he's being held up as this kind of, world leader but i think because then the following year he came back and did the famous judas tour uh, and you know people booed the electric half and cheered the acoustic half. there's this weird thing where because even though one of them was quite a negative experience i imagine for him he's very tied to london and england and we sort of really we pride ourselves on getting classy americans we're very proud like english yeah. music nerds are very proud of you know, the fact that Hendrix had to come here to go back to America. You know, we're very, we're very like yeah, proud of that. I think we feel that it sort of, um, it shows a kind of, you know, discerning taste. Like the beginning of um, It Takes a, a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, the Public Enemy album, is mm. audio from a gig they did in Brixton in South London. You know, like, I think we sort of, we feel that we like, we, we like the idea that we can, uh, we get stuff from America and we get it slightly quicker because yeah, we're I, smug, we're smug do, fuckers. No, I, but I love that you're saying that. And I've talked about this on the podcast before I did a, I did an internship in, in, in London uh, for a few months, summer of 2006. And I yeah. go to one of the music stores. I don't know if it was like Virgin or whatever they have out there. And, and, and I walk in and on the walls, plastered all over the walls, is ads for the new Rack and Tours record. Now, yeah. in America, that record is tucked away. No one gives a fuck about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, it's Jack White, but and maybe it's got a little, you know, promo in like the new releases cart. But I yeah. mean, this was like, and that's and like you said, that's that's a good rock and roll record. That's there's good writing in it. There's compared to what it was coming out at the time, that was actually a brilliant Bro record. Broken Boy Soldiers is I, I saw him at Glastonbury this summer. Jack White did a yeah. surprise show. So he was on a much smaller, he wasn't on one of the big stages. So they that that morning, they will occasionally do this on the park stage, which is I think like the third or fourth biggest stage. Uh, yeah. They'll announce somebody massive will do a surprise show on the Sunday. And sometimes it's um, 
Radiohead and one year it was Pulp. And then oh, this wow. year, my friend was like, it's Jack White, let's go. And so we kind of like ran over. We I can't remember what we were watching something else. And we like ran over and um, like, yeah. And again, just seeing Jack White in uh, on a stage, maybe like half the size or a third the size of what you were used to seeing everyone was so exciting. And I mean, the, the raconteur stuff is great. Broken Boy Soldiers, it's a great, it's a it's really, a great really record, good album. Yeah. It's a really good record. And, but that's what I'm saying is that England appreciates, I think the music, because I think a lot of the music that's come out of there, you know, has changed music. All the shit we're listening to now is because the shit that, like we you talked about the Beatles and, and you know, and, and Hendrix and, and, you know, Led Zeppelin. I mean, Christ, there's so many knockoffs of all of these artists, you know, that came out of there. I even think yeah. like, I also think that, that British music's changed the way people have sex with like Portishead and Massive Attack, yeah. you know? It's like, you can't, it's, it changed everything. Like what were people fucking do before that, you know? Portishead and Massive Attack is like, it's brought a sense of ennui and anxiety to sex that had not been there previously. And I think it's good. I think a bit, I think, fucking through the odd way is a real oh my god like, dude if, that's if, like a real subgenre of British music if i'm if i'm if i'm here if a girl walks into my apartment we're on a date and, and massive attack or portisette is playing like she she immediately is like all right this is what we're doing okay all right <laughs> you're letting me know and i'm like yeah let's get to it What's up, everybody? I hope you guys are enjoying this conversation as much as I did. Before we go any further, I want to tell you about a show from Next Chapter Podcast and the Clio Institute called House on Fire. It's a youth-centered podcast that takes its name from Greta Thunberg's famous speech. It's youth-focused because, let's face it, the boomers and even the Gen Xers are pretty much trashing the planet for the next generation. Each episode invites scientists, activists, artists, and more to have important conversations about Mother Nature and how we handle this complex crisis. And the topics they cover could help you make decisions about how you might want to vote or spend your hard-earned money in ways that leave behind a better world for those to come. So listen to House on Fire wherever you get your pods to stay informed and involved or go to cleoinstitute.org to learn more. And now, back to the show. Um, where where do you put this record like in your love of of Bob Dylan? Is this at, at the high end, the low end, or like, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on it? This is like at the high end of reasons why I love Bob Dylan. Like I remember, really? yeah, because I, it, it sort of, um, when, you know, when you're sort of going through that phase of hoovering it all up, I bought the basement tapes and I sort of listened to it and I was like, okay, this is just sort of a bit of like off cuts, all this kind of stuff, it, you know, I kind of get it, but the, he was going to Nashville to make his proper albums and the proper album that is made in this period is music for the big pink, the band record. And so you go, okay, fine. That's the proper stuff. And then you kind of buzz through. And I know that it become this like really fated mystical time. Cause he'd sort of disappeared. Grail Marcus wrote invisible Republic, which is a whole book about this time in his career. And, uh, and then, you know, and I saw I'm not there, which I love the Todd Haynes movie about Dylan which I absolutely love and Kate Blanchett is playing him and there's like a little black kid plays him and then Richard Gere is playing him in this this iteration where he's like yeah. he's sort of on a farm this it's kind of surreal and and I remember just thinking like I just I don't think I get this era of Dylan and I don't really get I don't really know what it is and then they released a bootleg series where they just released the whole of the basement tapes 
And I bought it just as a kind of, you know, at this point, it's like a sickness. My need to yeah. be like, but it's like, what, you know, I'm, I don't know. I'm preparing, like I'm preparing for a nuclear apocalypse, but instead of tin goods, <laughs> I've accumulated records by Bob Dylan. Yeah, but, yeah, I get it. You can be, when you become obsessed with something, it's like you become yeah. obsessed. And especially with music, it's just like, once you hear that thing and it gets in you and it gets in your soul where you're like, oh my God, this is, where has this been all my life? Yeah, it's it just, you great. want every, I, I had that with Radiohead where I started, I started when Napster came out, I was downloading like the shit that's coming out on the new OK Computer release. I'm like, oh, dude, I had Lyft fucking 22 years yeah. ago, bro. I mean, it took me four days to download it over my, <laughs> over my dial up modem, but I got it. But you, you love it. That's what's great about music. And, and Dylan's not did you a bad read the book about, did you read the book about Kid A? No, I haven't read anything okay. other than. I'm, I'm, than, I'm than, sorry, than I'm actually going articles. to look up this man's name to make sure that I get it right. But it's, okay. um, uh, I, I actually, I read it and I liked it so much that I bought it for a friend of mine who's also a massive um, Radiohead fan. I'm so sorry. Just give me two seconds because no, I really do think. I think yeah, it's called. So there's a book called "This Isn't Happening." Um, uh, and the kind of subhead title is Radiohead's Kid A in the Beginning of the 21st Century by Stephen Hyden. And it's absolutely brilliant. And it's basically a biography of the album Kid A. And it talks a lot about what you're talking about, like the early internet and the way that uh, file sharing sites and Napster were used to kind of proliferate Radiohead demos. And it's all about the inception and recording of Kid A and where the band were at that particular moment and what it meant for their career. It, it's so, so brilliant. Oh, I, I really it. can't, I can't recommend it strongly enough. This isn't happening by Stephen Hyden. I'm, it, I'm literally, I have so brilliant. many flights coming up that I'm like, I need Perfect. something. So it's like, I could probably knock that out in like, in like two road Perfect. gigs. Yeah, I'll be you, like, yeah. You'll, yeah, you'll lose your mind for it. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. But yeah, so then I get these Dylan bootlegs and then some somehow when I listen to the whole of it, I go, oh, I get this now. Like I get, I get why this is significant in his canon because this is like, this is him kind of discovering the joy of playing music again and the joy of songwriting. Um, because he's, you know, in context of his career, he's got, he's done, he's become this kind of folk icon. He's opened for Dr. King at the March on Washington, yeah. stood side of the stage and watched him deliver the I Have a Dream speech. He's become this kind of figure of the counterculture. He then sort of semi disavows that to become a kind of Allen Ginsberg beatnik who's backed up by, uh, you know, a rock and roll group that's caused a kind of tension with his fans. You know, he's, he's gone through this kind of real like sense of like constant turmoil and upheaval for really a process that is only about half a decade. And then he has this most, he comes off this terrible tour. He has this motorcycle accident. He releases Blonde on Blonde, which is kind of the end of that era. He's gone down to Nashville. He's made music that he calls, he says is the closest he caught to getting the music that he hears in his head. And he called it that wild, thin Mercury sound that he is on Blonde on Blonde. Mm -hmm. And now he's a family man. He's married. He's living on a farm upstate New York in Woodstock. And the band move in down the road. And they're kind of, they're sort of also shell-shocked by the experience of like being booed and jeered uh, as his backing group on the 66 tour. So now they're all in Woodstock. The band rents this house 
called the big pink and in the basement they just start fucking around and dylan is stepping back from you know a lot of what was going on in 1967 68 summer of love sergeant peppers the rolling stones do their satanic majesty's request like it's all densely produced psychedelia yeah and in that moment dylan and the band decide to rediscover rock and roll music and then in its 1950s incarnation and then go further back into kind of american folk music and american blues music and in that vocabulary they start playing these songs that are fun and funny and you know and at points there are these like funny little sketches and it, there's like a lot of there's a lot of joy in the basement tapes and there's also you know in that period he also writes that i shall be released which is you know the nina simone version of which is like one of the great versions of any dylan song um and so he is writing stuff that feels certainly emotional and things like tears of rage um, yeah. this wheels on fire but then in between that he's writing things like odds and ends which feels almost like a like a goof and yeah you know he it's like million dollar bash it's it all feels very silly and the mighty quinn is another song that actually kind of comes out of of this period so if, as somebody who like i'm obsessed and i'm obsessed with him and i know and i understand this in context as someone who's coming to it as more of an outsider what is your impression of listening to the basement tapes I, I, for me, it was actually I, when I got to this, I mean, by like I told you the records that I had listened to prior, I was like, yeah. finally, like John, <laughs> we John Wesley Harding was the first record that I was like, all right. Yeah, I really yeah. dig this. This is fun because uh, I, I, I had to admit it. I dislike Time Out of Mind and Love and Theft. I mean, there were some moments on it that I really liked, but ultimately I was just like I, I in my head, I was just like, I shouldn't be listening to this now. I yeah, should. Right, I, should yeah. I, I don't know enough. I'm not going to I'm not going to give it the justice it deserves in the podcast. When I got to this, I listened to it all the way through on one road trip up to a was it a wedding? It doesn't make a difference. I had like four hours and I was like, that's uh, this because I, I like to do one the first time i listened to the record i want to go all the way through yeah did, did a lot of it sound very similar yes but yeah. but it was still it was it was to me it was way better than the other three records that i had listened to i already loved the band and loved the music that they had made and at this point now i'm starting to go okay like i get it I get, I get Dylan, but it's like, fuck man. There's, I know I'm like, I'd appreciate this even more if I just really, really dug into that earlier shit. Um, but now looking at the facts and something that you said that I, that I, that, that Adam who, who gets most of my research done uh, is that you said it, it's like, this is the sixth summer of 67. This is a summer of love. And you have all these people doing this music that is so overly produced um, and not bad, some brilliant shit. I mean, Sergeant yeah. Pepper, shit like that. And then you have him come out with the basement tapes and, and which is the complete opposite. Do you think that it's like, what do you think that, that he's doing that for other than going the opposite direction of everybody else? Do you think he's trying to, or it's just what's going on? And cause, cause you mentioned something that, that like, you said he wasn't like having, he wasn't in, did you say he wasn't in love with music or something? You had mentioned something a moment ago that was like. He, 
I think that he, th- there's some interviews where he's, he said that he, he was kind of mentally strung out. I think uh, it, there's, there's bits of Eat the Document, which then ends up in the Scorsese documentary, the No Direction Home, where you can see him. There's a, there's definitely one bit the Scorsese uses where he's just like, he's sort of rocking backwards and forwards. And he's just like, I just want to go home, man. I just want to go home. Like he's, he, you know, he's, he's sort of upright on a combination of, I think like strong coffee and various amphetamines. Yeah. Um, and he's like, and he's basically like, he's kind of regulating his mood, I think on various drugs at that point, like a combination of amphetamines and weed and whatever he was going through his system. But he, you know, he looks like a, you know, like he looks like a ghost, you know, like he, by the end of that tour, the footage of him on that tour, he properly looks like a ghost and he's sort of been at war with his audience. And I think probably some of that had taken its toll on him. And then he has this like, and also he has these various like publishing deadlines. Like he's got a book that he's supposed to have written and it's sort of, you get a sense of the walls all closing in on this bloke in 19, in 1966. Yeah. And then he's upstate in New York and he has this motorcycle accident and the motorcycle accident became mythical at the time because people, he disappeared. He disappeared from of the public eye. He only appeared, you know, he appeared like a couple of times, like to do like, I think a benefit for like a benefit gig, something for John Hammond. And then he, uh, he did the uh, set at the Isle of Wight festival uh, in 69, no, sorry, 70. Cause that was Hendrix was there. And it, I think it was 70. Uh, and then, but he really does disappear. He doesn't tour properly until he goes back on the road with the band in the, in 73, 74. And he really is like, people think that he's been disfigured. Like there's, there's no, they've heard that the rumors are that he's, and now retrospectively, a lot of people writing about it are like, he basically fell off his motorbike, like injured his collarbone. And they use that as an excuse to be like, get this guy off the road. Because if he, he'd he contoured, continued touring and working at the same rate, there's a chance that he would have been dead by the end of the sixties. And then he, he has, he gets married and he adopts his uh, new wife's child. And then they have two kids of their own. And he just becomes, and you see photos of him in this period and like his face has filled out a little bit and he just looks like happier and healthier. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think some of this was just getting back to playing music, not because he was Bob Dylan, but just because it's what he really loved doing. What's up, everyone? This is Jay Reason. I want to let you all know that Diablo Zen Podcast is now part of the Sound Talent Media family. Listen in as me and the one and only Danny Diablo, a.k.a. Lord Ezak, interview artists from the hardcore punk, metal, hip-hop scenes, and beyond. We have conversations with guests like actor Peter Green, DJ Muggs from Cypress Hill, L.A. street photographer Estevan Oriel, Jimmy G. from New York City's legendary Murphy's Law, and pro wrestler Vampiro, to name a few. If you're a fan of good discussions and lots of laughs, tune in and join the fun. Hey, this is Chris Santos, host of Delirious Nomads, the Blacklight Media Podcast part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Delirious Nomads is a podcast about all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports. And me being a chef and all, we'll be riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. 
Listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com. And you can hear the freedom and the joy in a lot of these recordings of the basement tapes. And you know, there's like, there's, there's something about it. There's something about the song Odds and Ends that's like a perfect, like if this album had a title track, it feels like it would be Odds and Ends because it feels, that feels like the theme of it feels quite piecemeal. But at the same time, that kind of life, like with Dylan at that point, you just couldn't help but be influential. So he goes and does this kind of Americana lo-fi thing, which causes Eric Clapton to leave Cream because he thinks that this is all absolute rubbish. And because the recordings start leaking out in the 60s, because some of them, his manager is basically trying to sell some of the songs. So they sell... uh, the mighty quinn the manfred man make a recording of it the birds make recordings of ver- a couple of these songs and then the band do a version of i shall be released that goes on music for the big pink so he i think he, at the time he didn't intend on any of this to be released but it started getting bootlegged under the name great white wonder and then in eventually in 1975 he um a sanctions a release of the double album which is these basement tapes that we're talking about and it's just like it's full of these like odd characters and you know almost like there's almost like a sense of the circus and that's the sense that i think todd haynes captures really well in the richard gear section of i'm not there that dylan was writing about carnivals and you know this sort of these subcultures of entertainment in America that kind of start cropping up in the lyrics. And then there's just some straightforward songs like Tears of Rage and Going Going to Acapulco is one of my all-time favourite Dylan songs. Um, and it's just a very straightforward, beautiful song, I think. Yeah, I fell in love with Tears of Rage. That was, yeah. that was, that was really great. And then you have like, I, I found this little thing about it. It's not only uh, one of my favorites on this record, it's one of the most widely acclaimed songs. Uh, it's been suggested that Dylan is linking the anguish of Shakespeare's King Lears to the v- divisions in American yeah. society apparent in 67 as the Vietnam War escalated. <laughs> That's fucking awesome, man. What what feelings, like this, I wanna talk about that song because I love it so much. What feelings, thoughts, and, and message pass through you when you listen to something like that? It, it, it definitely, it, I think it feels, of a piece with um, she's the Beatles, she's leaving home. Like it's a sort of, um, it's a parent who has been somehow let down by by their child. And you know, and, uh, you know, I'm sure you could make a kind of um, case for it being a, a, a political song about America at the time, but also, you know, it could also easily be Dylan's a new father at that point, and it could be an expression of his like anxiety about what might happen if one of his, if him and his children have a falling out. I, the King Lear thing is, you know, what what dear daughter neath the sun would treat a father so is effectively a, a sort of two line summation of the plot of King Lear. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's basically, <laughs> you know, if, if you were uh, if you were trying to boil down King Lear to two lines. What dear daughter beneath the sun would treat a father so would <laughs> you could that cuts to the quick of a lot of it. Um <laughs> I think maybe the early reference to Independence Day in there is why people see it as some sort of allegory for the American family collapsing. But equally I think sometimes with Dylan it's like the temptation is to go 
it is to assume some sort of sociopolitical analysis, but he was a new father and there is, all, I guess, an anxiety about what his relationship is going to be with his children when they're older. And you can almost read it as like him imagining the worst case scenario of being the parent of an older child. Um, and it's, but again, it's just a very like, it's a very beautiful song. Come to me now, you know, we're so low and life is brief. Like it's, it's a very, sometimes he is just writing about what he's writing about. I think. Yeah. <laughs> like it's obviously there's a whole, you know, academic industrial complex that sprung up around his lyrics. Uh, but with some of them, you're like, I just think, he, I think he's like, an emo- he's, he's a, a human being with emotions. Um, and there's these, there's this, you know, this kind of story in, um, Howard Soonis wrote a biography of him called Down the Highway, and his father had died around this time, I think. And uh, there's this story that's in the book, and again, who knows if this stuff is true, but that Dylan broke down crying at his dad's funeral, saying that he never really knew or understood his father. And so, you know, I wonder if there's these are the kind of things that are like rattling around in his head at that point, like the relationships between parents and children. Um, what more is there it's interesting that 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 isn't enough for some people because ultimately like that what is a more human experience than parents and children really um it doesn't it doesn't always have to be about america yeah (laughs) i just like grand eloquent political statement but it's just you know when, when you have somebody that is that like you said he's shrouded in mystery it's it's almost like you know it's it's almost like a whole nother subgenre is just breaking down somebody that that gives you everything but also like you said he, he, you you know everything about him but you also know nothing yeah. and and you know it's it's fun it's like especially when you become yeah. obsessed i mean the dude has 39 records yeah. uh, it says 39 studio albums to his name and I mean, there's that's that's a lot of fucking work. Most people don't give you that, <laughs> yeah. you know. And most people, like, dude, like the Beatles only have, I think, like uh, ten or nine nine yeah. actual records. Um, and then you have to put him up there as like, is he the greatest songwriter ever? Like, what's what's your who would you put on your top five songwriters? <sighs> And you well, can combine you can combine Lennon and McCartney as one. I'll give you that. Yeah, you definitely say like Lennon and McCartney, and definitely Dylan would be up there. Certainly Lou Reed. Um, really, you're a big Lou Reed fan. You love love about Underground, and I'm okay. now slowly like going through Lou Reed's solo work. But yeah, love Lou Reed, love Joni Mitchell. I think in terms of particularly, like if you're talking about like pop songwriters you know like that Lamont Dozier Holland that era of Motown is just unbeatable like it's just unbeatable um I also think in terms of lyricists there are people like um like Andre 3000 is just one of my favorite like writers full stop like I think that he is I think that he has um he has a sort of understanding of language, you know, his, the, the verse on his, I mean, it's just, it's, it's sad that anything to do with Kanye West at the moment is just rightly 
tainted by that man's absolute yeah un- fucking disgraceful behavior but on his last album he had a song called life of the party and andre 3000 contributed a verse to it and it's just one of the most beautiful pieces of writing about grieving his mother you know it's the most it, it, it is something it, it just as a, a sustained piece of lyricism it's just in, absolutely incredible um and so yeah there's 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 a lot of them for sure like for sure there's a lot of them um that and i think with dylan as a songwriter particularly i am so sympathetic to people who don't like his voice and i'm so sympathetic to people who can listen to albums and come away with nothing i would be genuinely amazed if there isn't a single dylan song regardless of in fact almost certainly he's particularly the ones he hasn't sung that you, yeah. if you don't like like Nina Simone, I think is like one of the best interpreters of his stuff. And like her version of just like Tom Thumbs blues, her version of I shall be released. These are just phenomenal. Um, and you know, the like Hendrix, Hendrix's version of all on the watchtower is like, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's searing. It's like, it, it, it sort of, but again, it's like he, he, Hendrix sort of reads these quite spare lyrics about two characters who are sort of seemingly awaiting the apocalypse and then and then tries to make the sound of the apocalypse come you know like the two riders were approaching the wind began to howl and he's like okay fine so the guitar is going to howl like the winds at the end of the world yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) like he 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 he, 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 but it's all there sort of in the text and that's what i think is so amazing is that john wesley harding is this like really very old testament influence austere quite severe album and i think the the joy of dylan is the flip side is million dollar bash odds and ends you know the, the basement tapes feels like the goofy release that he gives himself and then he goes to nashville and makes his very very serious um john wesley harding old testament folk but backed up by bass and drums album yeah, uh, and you know, and then when he, but when he's with the band, he's like, you know, like, he, like ye heavy in a bottle of bread. It's just, it's just a stupid, you know, it's just a stupid goof. Like, bring me by, bring me my pipe. We're gonna shake it. Slap that drummer with a pie that smells. Take me down to California, baby. Like, it's just nonsense. And it's, it's, it's like it's, it's joyful and it's stupid in the in the sort of best possible way. Yeah. Um, and you know he, 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 he that's what I think is special about the basement tapes is it's you know the spokesman of his generation the political icon this is him having fun yeah and, and like, you feel it to play around with like yeah and, genres and of music that he really loves yeah, yeah you feel it I, I, I mean it like dude you know I, I have nothing bad to say about this record. You know, I think there's, I think, look, I'm not going to say every track needs to be on there, but it's, yeah. it's not like I'm like, ah, this sucks. It's just, you know, it's long, but that's, but that's doesn't mean that it's bad. It's just like you said, it's, this wasn't supposed to be released. They're just yeah. guys having fun, guys jamming. And, and there's nothing better than people making music when they're having a good time. I mean, even the yeah. performance, like I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall and just watch them just kind of like, you know, like pick through this and, and figure out where the jam was coming from. And, and yeah. 
uh, it, it just and it's it, like it's loose and like the, the very, you know if you listen to the live in 66 album i mean this is only a year after the judas gig and that band is so it's precise and it's kind of um it, it kind of sounds like nothing else it doesn't even sound really like the like they do on record it's it's harder edged very angular like jagged almost almost pushing at like Ramones style punk music like that yeah. they're making on on the Live in 66 albums it is very like it's very up tempo aggressive in your face rock music because they were trying to get in the audience's face you know their attitude was if you're going to boo us you know the the kind of infamous incident is in the Manchester Free Trade Hall where the guy shouts Judas and Dylan says I don't believe you you're a liar and then turns around to the band and shouts play fucking loud and that's the sort of mission statement of like if you're going to boo us for playing electric guitar we're going to play it loudly in your fucking face and yeah. there's like there is a, a, some of the dna of punk music in those recordings but then now he's like he's back on an acoustic guitar there's people playing accordions you know it's it's analog and it feels deliberately old-fashioned but the playing is just fucking loose you know, why? They... Go ahead, finish your thought. No, 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 thought. Go, no, go for it. I no, was going to say, why do, why do people, why did people get mad that he's like just changing as an artist? I don't understand that more than any other artist. It's like there, it seems to be Dylan going electric is a bigger deal than than it's like it's like a fucking huge thing in music history. And yeah. why are people why are people pushing back on it? I just don't understand that. It was like that's just the evolution of a dude. Like he was sort of I think he was it almost overlaps with politics at that point. And as the 1960s is progressing, he and the Vietnam War escalates, he I think it was seen as folk music is very connected to left-wing politics. And I think there is this sense that he was maybe rejecting the politics of the era and stepping away from it. And I think from his perspective, he was always just a songwriter, you know, and he was just like writing about the things that he felt like writing about. And he, I think from his perspective, he got to 1965 and he didn't have more to say on his political feelings than the songs yeah. that he'd already written. And, you know, the songs that he's already written by that point, you know, even if you look at things like, obviously the most famous songs, Blowing in the Wind, Times That Are Changing, are still used, you know, still the soundtrack to protest movements everywhere. Yeah. But also, um, you know, like there's songs like Only a Pawn in Their Game, which are maybe slightly less well-known, but are just, just as significant pieces of political songwriting. But I think he felt that he didn't have any more to give and he wanted to move away and do something slightly different. And I think maybe the audience instead of thinking, well, we already have this soundtrack that he's given us to our political protest movements, they wanted to hold on to him for a little bit longer. And he's yeah. always been, you know, he's creatively restless. Um, you know, he's, even when you listen to him in the, in the 70s, which we think of as like a less kind of, certainly like not as accelerated in his creativity as a period, you know, like he, he kind of goes like Planet Waves doesn't really sound anything like Desire, you know, and they're, they're only like three years that elapse in that period. And he's gone from making sort of a kind of mid-tempo country rock to this like violin soundtracked 
sort of, you know, like almost like he's become this sort of like traveling balladeer with the Rolling Thunder Review. Like he just keeps moving. And then two years later, he's an angry Christian. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like there's something about him that feels that it just, I think he just needs to keep moving. And he, even now, you know, if you, I don't think anybody could have predicted that he would start singing, like doing these crooner covers, you know, and start like covering songs that were made famous by Frank Sinatra. Who That's the, the evolution, that? dude. That's the evolution. <laughs> Everybody, you start there, like you get ready, man. Cause it's going to be like, like Wu-Tang's going to put out a Christmas record. <laughs> Everybody, that's well, just Wu Tang is for the children. At the end of the day, Wu Tang is for the children. Dude, I I just I go to shows all the time. You said you just went to go see Dylan. I went to go see. I've I've probably seen seventeen, eighteen concerts in the last three months at least. And I went. I, I my big thing is I take mushrooms and I go to concerts by myself. Right. But I went with uh, another comic, Big J Okerson. We went to see Wu Tang and Nas. We took mushrooms. I took way too much. And, <laughs> and and dude, I just felt like I was being yelled at by black people for two hours. I was like, what did I do wrong? I didn't. I didn't do anything, guys. And <laughs> I don't recommend. I would take mushrooms and go see Bob Dylan. I think I. I, I think, think that, that would be I, an interesting experience. I took mushrooms and went to go see Eric Clapton uh, at Madison Square Garden. And that, like you said about, he didn't, he played all his new shit. Like like Clapton just played fucking, he didn't play like Lay Down Sally. He played cocaine, he played the hits, but it was just, he didn't talk to the audience. Uh, Even the, even when he did Tears in Heaven, he did a version of it that was like, oh man, like it wasn't, it wasn't the one that I wanted. Like it just wasn't, it wasn't great, but you know, like he's a legend and and I'm going to go see those people. I'm going to go see everybody. I might not agree with what Roger Waters says in the world, but, you know, I want to see if he's the closest thing I can get to Pink Floyd. Like I'm going. I saw um, Wu-Tang headline at Gods of Hip Hop Tour and it was Wu-Tang headlining Public Enemy and oh, wow. De La Soul. And it was just, I mean, it was, it was such a great, like, it was just also like such a great advert for the basic variety that exists within hip hop. I know now hip hop is is written about in a slightly different way. And I think like rap music in general is more critically respected than it was maybe oh, yeah. when I was growing up. But when you listen to like De La Sar- when you like, you know, public enemies, like this, like Chuck T is still fucking political and engaged. Yeah. And he's still, you know, he was on stage like bemoaning immigration policy changes as a result of Brexit and how it's made touring musicians more, touring more complicated than musicians. Yeah. Like, yes, this is fucking amazing. Then, you know, and Wu-Tang are like these like Kung Fu movie obsessed, like stoners who, you know, are like really funny and wild and like old Dirty Bastards, uh, you know, obviously sadly departed and his son was there, young Dirty Bastard. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, like, this, this, it's like all shot through this sense of humor. and. De La Soul are, you know, are the hippies. You know, they're the, the the flower power rap group. And you're just like, oh, the basic variety that has always been available within rap. That's a great show. Great, I went to go see the gor- I went to go see the gorillas uh at, in Brooklyn at Barclays uh two weeks ago, maybe. And yeah. and he brought out De La Soul to do yeah. um to do Feel Good Incorporated. And yeah. I lost my shit. I just, yeah. cause I, but the coolest thing that I, cause the audience, they were like, oh, it's the guys from the song. But I was like, that's fucking, 
De La Soul. And then, and then the coolest shit, and then this is what the coolest shit is that Damon Albarn, who I've really grown to love over the years, his solo work, I love Blur, I love Gorillas, yeah. but I just love him as like his last record, uh, I forget the name of it, but it was like very orchestra, or, you know, very orchestral, if that's even a word. And it was yeah. just, it was very moving. And you could tell that it came out of what he dealt with in the pandemic. Um, yeah. But after the, but after he, he brings out De La Soul, he literally just, cause he's drunk, I think. And he's just like, <laughs> the reason we're doing gorillas is because of Three Feet and Rising. Like that's yeah. like those, I don't think you guys realize how important those two dudes are to this band. And, that, that and three feet high and rising is like that's the jewel of my vinyl collection is i have a first pressing of three feet high and rising with the really? in the inlay sleeve yeah it's the absolute like it's the it's the coolest thing i own uh, on record it's genuinely like it's really really it's such a special album and i, I hope that like some of the rights issues, because I think that's why it's not really on any streaming platforms. I sort of hope that some of that is alleviating. And I did notice at the end of the um, the last Spider-Man film, they used um, Three is a Magic Number over the end credits. And so you wonder if something is starting to, like an impasse has been So it's funny that you reached in the hostility. I know. But it's funny that you bring that up because um, two things I, that both from this podcast um, that I found very interesting about De La Soul. One, uh, when we did that record on this podcast, you couldn't find the recording anywhere. Like yeah. I had to like, I had to have uh, Ryan Moran from Comedy Central. I put up a post like, does anybody have it digitally they can send to me? And he yeah. like sent it to me and, and, uh, and the guest that I had on for it, you know, Brian Posehne, yeah, you know, yeah. Brian is a metal dude, and he yeah. was like, "This is one of my favorite records." So that was one I was like, "Oh shit, this really does transcend yeah. everything." And then two, when I had Michael Rappaport on to do um, D'Angelo early on in the podcast, he was like out front of my my uh, my apartment in Los Angeles on the phone for like 45 minutes. Like, and I'm like, yeah, you can come in. He's like, yeah, I'm just dealing with something. And then he comes in. He's like, yeah, I've been on the phone with the, with the dude. What's one. I forget one of the guy's names, the, the dude with the glasses from De La Soul. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. There's only two of them. Um, but he, but he's like, yeah, the, he's there. He's arguing. Uh, they're, they're arguing about how Tommy boy is like holding their music and not giving right, them. The, right, so there's, right. so there's something way more than just like, they didn't get the compensated fully for this record. And, right, and so okay. they're pulling it and Tommy boy is like holding it and holding the masters from them. Um, and it was just, it was just crazy. And then to, you know, all to have it all like to listen to it and then deal with trying to find it. It's just, you know, they're a band that just put out this one record. I mean, they made more music, but it's like, you know, you could have a career like Bob Dylan and you could have 39 yeah, yeah. records that, that not everyone is fucking perfect, but it's like yeah, the, yeah. the ones that are, are fucking damn near perfect. Or you could just have somebody that like, I made this one record that changed yeah. music. And then that was it. Yeah. Um, what kind of, what do you, what do you think is more important? Do you think it's having the longevity or having the one record that you think is, is like, this is, this is a game. I'm trying to think Lauren Hill. There you go. Lauren Hill. Perfect you mentioned her earlier. Yeah. She, she dude, miseducation of Lauren Hill is, is in my top five. It, yeah. It's, it's one of the greatest records ever made. 
you know, but she's never done anything. And then you have someone like Dylan, and I'm not saying they're the same artist, but they both have reached into their souls and put out yeah, this music. Yeah. Like, what do you think comparing those two? Like, I mean, those two it's, styles? it's hard to say, isn't it? Because you, this part of you that thinks like, if you get one album like The Miseducation, then maybe you don't. I mean, the score is also an amazing album. So, I mean, she's kind of got two big ones. But sure. even if, like, you get one album like Miseducation, there's a part of you that thinks, like, in a way, maybe that's maybe that's enough. Like, that, it's such a perfect album. But there is something about... Um, and, you know, like, a lot of the people I like, you know, a lot of the people we all like, died very suddenly and you know they 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 preserved them you know the Hendrixes the Cobains and the Joplins of this world sort of preserved their mystique you know and they didn't go through and the thing with Dylan is there is like there is like a super embarrassing phase of Dylan you know like some of the 80s stuff but in the end what I love about his career is that he's become now what he always wanted to be when he was 21 he's like an old bluesman he's like an old bluesman or an old folk singer yeah and he he, he, the arc of that career is so interesting and it's so fun to like be able to say to people you know like bring it all back home i think is a perfect album uh blood on the tracks i think is a perfect album and then it's so fun to also go hey you know i actually really love like he closed the palladium on every grain of sand which is a song from his christian period which is the like you know is the kind of critically derided period but he also in the middle of it wrote the song every grain of sand which is like as good as anything he ever did in his career it's like it's as good as anything it's as good as visions of johanna it's as good as like a rolling stone and the idea that you get this kind of, I think you sort of, I think as like a fan of an artist, it's fun to be able to have the like span of a career and to talk about the kind of undulations of um, somebody's genius. And it allows you to kind of, you know, especially for people who have like, you know, it was like the, the Dylan crowd was like, there's, there's people my age there, there's a couple of, there's some younger people there. And then there's a lot of there's a lot of dudes in their sixties and seventies, and you're like, this is you know, this is the you know my friends <laughs> on, but you've been on, been on this journey, you yeah, yeah, this, they've been on this... on this ride, yeah, man. <laughs> like you know, like my friend's mum was at the Manchester Free Trade Hall gig with the Judas guy. You know, she was she was there for that. She's you know she saw the guy yell that at him. You know, like my girlfriend's dad was at like is American and was at like anti-Vietnam protests with Baez and Dylan. And so there's like, when you have the arc of a career, you can be bound to a generation of people, but for people like me who come to it much younger, um, you know, you sort of feel it's, it's fun to be like a student of somebody and it's fun to get like, it's fun to see somebody allowed to move through different phases. And then it makes you sometimes a little bit sad that like, we never got to see Jimi Hendrix. Like, yeah. You know, we never got to see Jimi Hendrix be like buddy guy. 
Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. You know, yeah, like, wow. an, like an old... Because, like, you know, sure, you kind of... In, in, in your 20s, you'd never be as beautiful as you are in your 20s. You'd never be as cool as you are in your 20s. But fuck me, if you... Buddy Guy is a better guitar player than he has ever been, you yeah. know, like because he's he's learned so much and he's there's so much like there's a depth of feeling in his playing. And there's something really like, you know, I saw Prince in when he was in London in 2000 and oh, what year was that? It was when he did the 21 nights in the O2. So probably I think it was 2006 seven maybe 2008 uh, yeah that so seems about right that seems like yeah. when he was doing like venues over like he did that at the forum where he did like a month straight yeah and the virtuosity of his musicianship is is 2007 we've had it confirmed it's been researched yeah. <laughs> the virtuosity that he displayed you know he had got he was a better musician than he was when he was uh, you know, nineteen twenty, and you know, playing every instrument on an album. You know, he is his guitar playing was like nothing I've ever seen before, and and sometimes you know, like I, this part of me that like I want more music from Lauren. I wanted another Lauren Hill album. Like I would love to hear a Lauren Hill album and hear what that sounds like now. And often you know, with musicians, when there's only one album, there's not a good story behind it. You know, like, and I understand, like, there's things that happened with Lauren Hill that are really hard and unfair, and she was really exploited by a lot of different people in her life, I think. And that's kind of why we don't have more uh, more albums. You know, there are, there's the rare exceptions, like uh, Bill Withers retired. Like he married yeah. this super smart lady who had an MBA. She consolidated all of his like songwriting rights. He owned all of his stuff and Bill Withers just retired. And, uh, you know, in a way I'm like, I'm happy there's no new Bill Withers music because he had a wonderful life and he yeah. retired. And that's why we, you know, we've not heard of him. We've not heard from him for 20, 25 years because wow. it, it, his, he just made some business decisions and he was able to retire. And, but when you, when so, 99% of the time when there's only one like album it's not for good reasons you know it's either because somebody died dies, yeah yeah or, or it's because there were like there's just sort of other stuff sort of going on in their lives that kind of drag them away from being able to make it so like on balance i would rather you know i'd rather the arc uh, than you know I'd, yeah. I'd, i i do think eventually you're like no, it, it, it maybe is better to fight away than burn out. <laughs> yeah. Well, you but you said something. You said something that I really liked, which is like even in the crap, there was some there was some gold. And I think totally. that's 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 kind of like you're you're you know yes on an album of twelve songs, if ten of them are crap, but you get two songs that you're like, oh, this is this is genius. This is up there with yeah. any of the other work he's ever done. So I, I get that. And, totally, also look- and also like, you know, David Bowie makes all this like incredible music in the 1970s. And just as he's about to fucking die, he makes an album that is easily the equal of yeah. anything he did in, yeah, the, in yeah. the 70s and 80s. Blackstar yeah. is 
it, it sounds sonically so adventurous. He it doesn't sound like anything else. It doesn't sound like anything else. You know, like around really, yeah, because like yeah, again, like David Bowie, want an advert for staying open. He's like listening to to Pimp a Butterfly and loving Kendrick Lamar and like soaking up kind of the neo jazz that comes through that album. Yeah, and you know that that's in his like late sixties. You know, so in a way, you're like you you want the long career because you want to trace the evolutions of these people. And if it's a short career, all you do is you hope like, if somebody like does like one album, they're like, we banged out this album. Everybody fucking loves it. You know, like maybe like the strokes a little bit now, like the strokes are like, we did this great album. Everybody loved it. We didn't really do anything that maybe got to that level again, but we still did this album, and we're all cool, and we're we we're happy. We have no, and you're like, fine. That's a love. What a lovely yeah. story. Oh, but yeah. a lot of the time, when there is a small body of work, it's not for good reasons. I, I look at a band like that that I really love. Um, that I think right now, even having not released any new music since two thousand, Rage Against the Machine. They're, I mean, they're yeah. just they're just so powerful. There's everything that's great about them, and I think the reason that they're always going to be popular is because those three records are just this little era of music and they have nothing, they have nothing in the whole uh, 2000s or even the 2010s that is new. So they never went cheesy. They never fucking did anything that was like them trying to fit in with whatever was popular at the time. You just have these three records that are Rage Against the Machine full and through and just perfect. And so when you see them now, it's like, you're not getting any new songs. You're, they're not trying to do anything new. They're not writing yeah. anything new. They're just like, these are what we got. We're going to play these for you. And, yeah, yeah. and it's just, it's, it's almost like they're, they're Han Solo, just like, just covered in the, in the carbonite, just frozen yeah, yeah. in time. So he's still young. It still feels the same and it doesn't have that awkward period. And, you know, I, I agree. It's like, I, I love Lauren Hill. Um, I don't know if I want another album from her because I think it'll just taint whatever the odds that she can even touch what she did and miseducation is, is slim to none, you know? Um, All right. So we have a Patreon question. All right. Is this a real Patreon question, Adam? Is this one real? Is this like this? Cause this, uh, it says, I don't know if we did, we check this fact. It says, this is from Michael. I don't know uh, his last name or his Twitter handle, but it says, it says there was mold in the basement. Do you think Dylan and company inhaling it affected the music? (laughs) (laughs) Referring to Big Pink here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, (laughs) there's something about it being recorded in a moldy studio. And I think Dylan has said like, you know, it was just a bunch of people who were friends with each other just playing music and there was like a dog wandering around. There were just dogs wandering in and out. Nice. There's something about the idea of them recording in a moldy room that sort of feels fitting. Like it doesn't feel like, like when you, you the album cover is perfect for this because it it's like, it's this like dank brown and like the album cover looks like it has mold on it. <laughs> Yeah, 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 it does. <laughs> like, there's this like sen- there's a sense of moisture, I would say, about everything about this record. So maybe the maybe the spores got in and chilled them the fuck out. I dig it. But I dig it. It was I- yeah, maybe. I suspect 
it was something else they were inhaling that accounts for the relaxed atmosphere. You know what I love about that is that every every like you know high school band I was in, it was just we were always jamming in a moldy basement, and it was like yeah. we felt like we were changing the world. And I bet they were probably, you know, digging through the same thing. They're just like, nah, man, it's just we're just in our mom's basement, just jamming. And I mean, look at them; they look they look like how much fun that. Look at the dog. There's a little yeah, little, yeah little there's dog a dog on there. the album cover. Yeah, there's dude. the real to real the real to real tapes just at the front and just they've sort of captured this sort of um this like <laughs> grubby this the pipes are all visible it's it's got something of the spirit of whatever this uh no, i love it this album i love is. it i love it i love the outfits like i'm just like this is so it's so funny it's like how that fashion is just so in right now everybody just wants to yeah, dress yeah. like a mumford and son you know what i yeah. mean it's like God, I love it. But that dog doesn't even realize like how cool it is. <laughs> the dog saw everything and it's just licking its asshole. Good for that dog. All right. Uh, let me ask you these questions. I ask everybody this. This was great, man. I, I love you. can Come back. Thank on. you so much. Like, we've got we've got more Dylan. Any other records? Just look at the list. And I'd love to have you on and pick your brain. Yeah, about those. I love, I love it. This is great. All right. Favorite song on this record. Uh, I would say going to Acapulco. That's the one that I would uh, most regularly revisit, and I would also say the um, I would say the net the my morning jackets cover of this that's on the I'm not there soundtrack is definitely worth checking out. I'll check that out. Uh, Lee's favorite song on this record. And I don't always want to call it that. I just say what do you, what do you skip over because I feel like there's a little bit of filler on this, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I would say. <sighs> Yeah, I'd say maybe things like um, maybe don't don't you tell Henry? Okay. Uh, maybe maybe long distance operator as well because long distance operator is also right before the end. It's right before Wheels on Fire, which is such a like. It, it, it is an amazing song, and yeah. so maybe it's maybe I would skip long distance operator because you to get to the other get one. to the end of that. Yeah. All right. All right, I ask this to everybody. It's a two-part question. Um, one, is this a fuckable album? And two, if you were making a sex playlist and you got to pull one song from this record and put it on that playlist, what do you fucking do? But is first, is it a fuckable album? I don't know that this is a fuckable album. The only thing I would say is, like, I feel that the atmosphere of... Um, I, I sort of feel the atmosphere of relaxed good humor is conducive to sex. I that's the because this this definitely is not like you know this is not D'Angelo at all. <laughs> this is this is not what I think we would broadly deem to be sex music at all. But the only thing that I would say in its favor is that there is a real atmosphere of relaxed bonhomie that i think is can be quite an important component uh for sex i mean i don't know which song you would <laughs> yeah what do you fucking do dude have you fucked have you fucked a dylan before has dylan been on no, when you're fucking no, no, no it's too it's too precious yeah i get it it's too it's too, it's too specific i guess like i mean i uh, this the bits of dylan where i guess you think of him like i think there's the bits of it where you like get him the sexiest iteration of Dylan, I guess is when he sort of looks like a model 
when he's very ill in the like in 66 when he's got yeah. the huge hair and the like the kind of cheekbones are jutting out the side of his face i think that's the era of him that you feel is you know is like is is its sexiest era like that that it, it, the 66 and that album as well feels very like sleek oh, yeah. and there's obviously something very sexy about a person telling a group of people to go fuck themselves like that's yeah, a yeah, fuck yeah. you energy yeah like this yeah. era of dylan adam just brought up the like the mid-60s era where he you know he's the sort of he's one of the coolest people that that era of dylan is one of the coolest people that's ever lived you know the thick ray-bans the kind of nehru jackets and these like the the impossibly huge hair he, yeah. that's the era of him this is more like the sort of avuncular father of three yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I would say, but the only thing I would say in its favor is like, um, it, um, it, it has a relaxed atmosphere that I think is is good. I think you sex, can fuck to this. I, I think you can fuck it. You can. It's it listen. It. It's 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 you know it's long, so they just yeah. play it on the background. Uh, you're not gonna get through it. Uh, maybe if you take a Viagra, if you take a Viagra and it slows everything down, then maybe. But I think you can fuck to this. <laughs> I, dude, I, it's. I think you can, but I, it's not something I would go to. If it was on, I wouldn't turn it off. Yeah, and, yeah. and Brandon, we had Brandon uh, Boyd on from Incubus, and we were talking about Jeff Buckley, and he he made a good point. He's like, I, you know, sex is about being connected with the other person and like being present. And he's like, and having something on like this, and I would say it even about Dylan, is it such art? that like you can't not pay attention to the art that's in the background and that's being made yeah, and it's sure. going into your ear. So it's going to take you out of it. And whether it's, yeah, yeah. it's sonically or just lyrically, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't like disintegration by the cure, which is brilliant, but it, it sets a mood and yeah. you can fuck to that. This is like, yeah. this is definitely different. But on that note, what song are you fucking do? <laughs> what song am I fucking do right what, now? No, 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 no. Off this record. Off this record. Oh, what are you fucking record. do? Yeah. I'll go to I'll go with um maybe uh, maybe go I'll go uh, crash on the levee. All right. Crash on the levee down to the flood. There it is, dude. <laughs> there a, it is. There's a bit of rhythm to it. That's what there it is. For. There it is. All right. And the last question, uh, what would be your elevator pitch to get somebody to listen to this record? Uh, you know, you think Bob Dylan is boring. He's not. He's actually really good fun. And here's why. Like, I, I, I think it. this Dylan the goofball is not something that people really know about. And it, But it's a huge part of his recorded output. And there's often stuff on the albums that is evidence of his, like, sense of play. But this album has it in spades. I love it. I love it. That was perfect. Uh, promote away. Anything you want to promote, buddy? Uh, I have, I guess I've like, I have two comedy albums that are available everywhere. You can get uh, your albums on all the various streaming service, uh, services and they're called uh, It's In Your Nature To Destroy Yourselves Part One and It's In Your Nature To Destroy Yourselves Part Two. Brilliant. And we'll promote all that at the beginning and at the end after this too. Nish, this was so much fun, man. Was, I can't, this was so fun. One hour. I can't thank you enough. We'll be in, I'll be in London uh, for JFL is doing something, I think in March. Yeah. So I right. think we're, okay. we're coming there. We're doing a goddamn comedy jam and, and hopefully I get to run into you while I'm there, buddy. Yeah, that'd be great. And we'll have you back for sure. Oh, you're man. coming back. This was, this was so fun. I absolutely loved it. I could talk about you music with you all day. It's this fucking great. 
What I tell you, what I tell you, the one and only Nish Kumar. Follow him on all social media at Mr. Nish Kumar and his website, nishkumar.co.uk. Now, we just listened to Bob Dylan, the band from 1975. For new music this week, we have listeners submitted Russ Cody. It's his band Skip's Museum, uh, who says they were hugely influenced by the band. And you're listening to the song Long Row to Ho off their album of the same name. And you can find links to the music on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you send us your song, we'll play it. Send your song to 500podcast at gmail.com. Also, listen to my other podcast, Himbos, with Justin Silver. We drop episodes every Monday. It's great. It's funny. And we talk about fashion, science, fitness, all the stuff that himbos are into. So listen to it. You can go to joshadammyers.com to find out everything about it. But next week, it's Talking Heads Week, 1977. Talking Heads, 1977. Dig it. up just to punch the time I run around all day my soul fades away took away my simple life I can't forget where I came from but Lord knows that I tried
Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. And Decent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Next Chapter Podcasts.